Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. Today, my guest from the West is actor Michael Loney. Michael Loney has accumulated an extensive repertoire of roles, having appeared in over 150 stage productions, ranging from the classics to contemporary Australian and international fare. It was at school that a teacher identified emerging talent and encouraged him to pursue acting. He grew up in Perth and, as a young man, ventured to the UK to study at the Bristol Old Vic. Whopper wasn't even a thought yet. Upon graduation, roles in Coronation Street and Howard's Way came Michael's way. He returned to Perth in 1988 and acted in a variety of shows at the Playhouse, Black Swan and the Hole in the Wall Theatre. These included Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Seagull, Heartbreak House, Nolan Gertie, Speaking in Tongues, The Club and The Goat, or Who is Sylvia. As an actor, Michael is incredibly engaging and intelligent, on stage and off. He's incredibly charming and eloquent, and in this episode he reflects on considerable experiences in the theatre and the immense contribution that Perth-based actors like himself have made to the community. There was a period, of course, I suppose, where there were a lot of imports in Perth. Oh, yeah. Well, what the most recent would be um, The Graduate. Jerry Hall, yeah, yeah, and they used a lot of locals in that. Uh, Luke Hewitt was the uh, husband in that, and he then went on to play, did it with her in Melbourne. And then when she married Rupert Murdoch, he stopped it. (laughs) Apparently he said, you're not acting anymore. That's the rumour I heard. Got to be a wife. No wife of mine's going to be an actor. Exactly. And also she had to be topless in her. Yes. He didn't want that. So he was going to go and do a full Australian tour after Melbourne, but uh, no, it didn't carry on. And Heartbreak House, I remember seeing that when I first That would be 94, yep. would it be? 94? Yep, it was indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And that, they brought in a lot of Eastern States actors, and Louise Lambert and I were partners in it, You know, who was Miranda and Picnic, Picnic and Hanging Rock. Um, who else was in it? Donald McDonald and various other people. And uh, Faith, of course. And uh, But uh, no, it didn't didn't take off at all. So were those producers based in Perth? They were obviously they were lawyers. Yeah. Right. Perth lawyers. Mm. Who kept bringing... Always played the match? No, they only did the, that one show, and then they did a, a movie called Under the Lighthouse Dancing with Jack Thompson, Jackie McKenzie, Naomi Watts, and a British actor named Aidan Gillett. And uh, I played the Irish priest in that. And um, that was uh, a bit of a debacle as well. <laughs> It was a, um, a ready-made audience for to see some of those English stars. Did Tim Brooke Taylor come out as well? Yeah, it's with My Fat Friend, right. with Nancy, not Nancy Nunn, that's the, her mother, uh, Judy Nunn. Right. Mm. Milson directed that. Oh, really? Mm. <laughs> that's about 1978, 77, 78. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's a nice segue into John Milson, uh-huh. um, who I knew uh, very, very well from running the course at Whopper, but you knew him as a director of note in Perth. He would have been in Perth for 30 years. Oh, he came over here the first time, early 70s, brought over by the um, Gilbert and Sullivan Society to Iolanthe, I think. And uh, he then kept on getting work here and work here, but he always loved Sydney. He always said, I'm a Sydney boy, I'm a Sydney boy. And he certainly got back there as often as he could, I guess, during breaks. Well, he's resting there now at Waverley, uh, Waverley Cemetery. But uh, um, 
he loved Sydney, but the, he got a lot of work here and he was instrumental, along with Edgar Metcalf and Ray Omaday and a few others, of really cementing the professionalism of West Australian theatre. He was a divisive character. Oh, yeah. You, sort of, you either yeah. got on with Nelson or... Oh, he, he was um, unrelenting if he didn't like you. And if he liked you, uh, you, you couldn't do anything wrong. But if he decided that uh, you, he was against you, or whatever it was, he could be cruel. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Very cruel. But he, he taught me, and I would say the people who worked with him, more than I've probably learnt from just about anyone else. Fiercely independent man, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, great. He really uh, relished hard work. He couldn't stop working. He had to work. He had. He always said to me, uh, "I have nothing else. It, it, my life, is, my work is my life, and my life is my work. I have nothing else. I have no family. I have no partner. I have nothing. I must work. And if he couldn't, he would be just in a. Uh, he, he was. He would do anything, almost anything, rather than sit at home, paid or unpaid. Didn't matter." And he did the whole gamut too. He would work, obviously, running the, the students at, at WAPA, but also he would direct professional mm-hmm. theatre in Perth, mm-hmm. but also regularly work with the amateur companies. Oh, yeah, yeah. and he loved them, yeah. and they loved him because he taught them so much. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, he was um, uh, just a craftsman. I think that's one way of describing him and his era of uh, craftsmen and women in Perth who were Edgar Metcalf and Raymond Omaday and others, they work, they craft very well. Uh, Milson, of course, succumbed to the big C. Yeah. Well, he was a chain smoker, and he was one of these people who would rip the filter off the cigarette and uh, throw it away. Cause that, <laughs> and he smoked Rothmans, and uh, at the end, Marlborough Red. And I remember one time taking him to hospital, uh, take him home from hospital. I took him to hospital. I took him home from hospital, and he hadn't had a cigarette for ten days. And he was more or less was well. The fact that he got out of hospital was remarkable, anyway. And he should have died in this time. This was about three or four years before he actually did die. And so there was a period where he'd sort of fallen and he was on the floor for a couple. Yeah, of Yeah, well, that was yeah. that incident right. where he'd had a whatever the situation was, but he collapsed. And then he was taken to um, Sir Charles Gardner Hospital. He was found and taken there, and they, he had no Medicare card, never been in hospital, never had been to the doctor, had nothing. They didn't know anything about him. I turned up because I'd heard a rumour that he was in hospital. And um, I turned up and I suddenly became his next of kin because they knew no one else. I had to get him a Medicare card and all that sort of thing. But after about 10 days, I took him home. And he said... Uh, Listen, go to the coals and get some Marlboro Red. <laughs> and I said, John, you're not where you get the coals and get the Marlboro Red. And honestly, I have never seen a packet of cigarettes open so quickly. And he just opened them almost in one movement. He uh, opened the carton, took out the packet, took out the cigarette and lit it almost like that. Wow. And it was in his mouth, he went, (laughs) (laughs) with that claw-like hand. Yeah, yeah. God love him. Um, You were talking about uh, he'd won an award on his deathbed. (laughs) (laughs) An award that allowed, can I say what he actually said? Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
Edgar Metcalf, as I mentioned earlier, is a great craftsman and uh, really um, was the, the person who, if they gave an award for the person who had most influence on West Australian theatre, would have to be Edgar Metcalf. And, um, but he and John Milson did not get on. For whatever reason, they did not get on. And John literally was on his deathbed. He died the next day. But um, uh, we wanted to give him an award before he died. The Equity Awards, the local West Australian Equity Awards, were coming up on the Monday, and I was comparing them. And uh, so we wanted to get an award. And Edgar Metcalf had died only a few months beforehand. So we thought, well, we've got to honour Edgar. We've got to honour John. So we dreamt up the Edgar Metcalf Award, and we gave it to... I gave it to John literally in his hospital bed uh, on, and he was more or less in a coma and uh, so I, I gave him the award and I said John you've won the Edgar Metcalf award and he it must have <laughs> roused him out of his deep deep sleep and he opened one eye and he looked at the award and he went oh fuck <laughs> and that was the last word he said that was it he died at, at about um, midday the next day but it was interesting the day he died because he was in palliative care at Bethesda in Claremont in Perth and um, I went I was called by the hospital to come over because he was um, he was fading away and uh, but just out of the blue all these actors turned up huh. just quite unannounced uh, they just turned up and about 10 actors were in the room when he died huh. and we uh, Jun his great friend and I were um, standing next to the bed, and uh, then John died, and then Andy King, another wonderful Perth actor, he started a clap and applause and a cheer, and all the actors just cheered and cheered and clapped and clapped and clapped, and all the doctors and nurses ran in and said, what's happened, what's happened? And we said, he's died. They said, well, why are you clapping? Why are you cheering? And we said, well, we're all from the theatre. Yeah. They said... One of the nurses said, I've been here for 30 years. No one's ever been cheered and clapped when they've died before. And I said, well, John's a man of the theatre. We're saying goodbye yeah. to him. Oh, how very appropriate. That's mm. yeah, fantastic. Mm. Uh, can you share a few stories about Edgar Metcalf? Because he's a significant contributor to, to oh, WA. he certainly was. Well, he was a man from English Rep, and that's how Perth Theatre ran really up until the 90s was... English monthly rep and Edgar had started in England in, in uh, well the, around Bolton and Oldham in England uh, sort of outside of Manchester and that and uh, he did weekly rep so every, he knew every play in the in the British canon and he came here in 1963 uh, to, to be the first one of the first artistic there were a couple but one of the first artistic directors of what was then called the National Theatre of the Playhouse in Perth the, the Playhouse was a theatre set up in 1956 by four people who got the money together uh, two devout Irish Catholic, Irish Australian Catholic women and two Jewish men who got together, got all the money together and uh, built it. And Harold Krantz, uh, he d was the Perth's leading architect at the time, he designed it. His wife, Dorothy Krantz, was the Perth's leading actress at the time. They started it, and with uh, Lily Kavanagh and Nita Panel, and Sol Sankin as well. Well, the Playhouse was built in 1956, and uh, the money raised by local 
people who are lovers of the arts, basically. Sol Sanken, Harold Krantz, uh, Nita Panel, and Lily Kavanagh were the driving force, the company of four they were known as. And so they got all the money together and it was... Um, but by 1960, that was 1956, by 1963, Edgar Metcalf arrived and he really galvanised it into a proper repertory company and monthly rep where they did 12 shows a year and they all ran for a month and they do a Shakespeare or a um, whatever, a lot of English stuff, I mean almost all English stuff basically and it was very successful. It was an 800 seat theatre at that time and was packed most nights. And then, um, so Edgar ran that on and off, really, up until the 80s. But he was very versatile, too. He was a playwright, an actor, a director, yeah, yeah. very much a man of the theatre. Oh, yeah. He, he was a wonderful director. And he, could, he like Milson and Raymond Omaday, another man who was uh, at the forefront of um, West Australian theatre, they could do anything. If you said to them, right, we need you to direct an Akebourne, an opera, uh, a musical, uh, a Shakespeare, a new Australian play, uh, a restoration, whatever it is, and they go, right, sure, because they could do it all, they've done it all. And they, their craft was so deep and so broad that uh, they, they knew the theatre and every facet of it so well. Yeah. What was Edgar's uh, rehearsal room like? Very ordered, very disciplined and very pretty calm really he wasn't too bad he had his moments of course but uh, he just loved work and that's one thing i noticed milson ray omaday and edgar uh, they loved work they loved to just you th they thrived on hard work yeah and they just worked and worked and worked and worked now raymond of course is still with us but he started the hole in the wall uh, no that was no, started no. in 1963 by um frank baden powell and john gill in 1963 at a little warehouse in um on the corner of uh sterling street and aberdeen street i think in um it's still there today it's now a florist then they moved to um, well, the reason why it was a hole in the wall, they needed a, a bigger room. So Frank, just without any planning permission, uh, got a sledgehammer and knocked a hole in the wall. Oh, dear. That's how it got the name, right. hole in the wall. And uh, then they moved to Leederville, to Southport Street, Leederville, in about 1973, something like that. And um, then they moved to Subiaco, what is now the Subiaco Arts Centre in the about mid-80s. And uh, but by then it was uh, wasn't Frank Baton Powell, it was um, uh, Raymond Omino by then, yeah. Right. So they were all you know, and they all British rep, English rep was you know, was the, the cornerstone of it. And of course, Perth having such a massive British population sort of um, latched onto that. Great. Thanks for sharing those experiences of those men. Um, I, I knew you'd be the man to talk to, having worked with all of them, but I did want to sort of celebrate them in, in yeah. this, this conversation. Well, Raymond, Raymond Omaday is now in care, um, but he's um, still feisty. Yeah. And men who's, who seem to be married to the theatre. Oh, they were, certainly were. Yeah. Yeah. But this conversation's about you, <laughs> of course. Uh, you are born in Perth, weren't you? Born yeah. in Perth of two West Australian parents and West Australian grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents and great 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 grandparents. All here. All so, here. So, so when did the first. 1829. Right. Yeah, the and first year of settlement. And they arrived as. 
Uh, with Captain Sterling on the ships, the Sulphur and the Callista, because there are four ships that arrive first with the Challenger, Captain by Captain Fremantle, the Parmelia, Captain by Captain Sterling, the uh, Sulphur, Captain by Captain Dance, and then the uh, Callista, and I don't know who the captain of that was, but uh, they were all part of the West Australian uh, a company that Captain Sterling had set up in England. Um, of uh, the West Australia, uh, well, called the Swan River Investment Company, all coming here to make money. That's what they're here for. Right. And the more servants and cows and sheep and whatever you brought with you, the more land you got. Because Western Australia was never going to be a convict settlement. It was an investor's delight. Right. They were here to make money, get as much land as possible to themselves, hoping people would come from all over the world, buy it from them, and they'd all be rich. But no one turned up because outside of the Swan Valley in Perth, which is very good fertile land, Perth is a sand dune, that's all it is. Mm. And when the settlers turned up after 1829, they took one look at it and said, they tried their English farming techniques and they thought the seasons were, you know, that June, July was the middle of summer, well, they were wrong. And so they, they got it all wrong. And so people actually left here, more people actually left the colony than arrived here because of the condition of the soil and the seasons and the, the farming techniques they tried. And so by 1829, which was the first year of settlement, of course, acknowledging the Aboriginal people for tens of thousands of years before that, yeah. but um, the first year of British settlement from 1829 was, uh, uh, it started, and by 1849, there were less than 5,000, let's call them British and Irish, because that's what they were, yeah. Uh, in the whole of Western Australia, not just Perth, the whole of Western Australia, it was regarded as a failure. And so Western Australia became, I believe, the only place in the British Empire to request convicts. (laughs) And so by 1850, when convictism had stopped on the East Coast, it started on the West Coast. And so uh, they brought 10,000 men here, and only men, no women. And so people started leaving here again because there were no women here. So the West Australian... Legislative Council, it wasn't a proper government, brought um, girls from the orphanages of Ireland to stop them leaving, and known as the bride ships. And thousands of girls were brought here, and for many of those girls, they were married to the convict who chose them as they walked down the gangway. And there was a priest at the end of the gangway to marry them. My Lord. So yeah. many stories. Yet that... Well, uh, I know this because I, I found the story about them, the bride ships, it's called, the bride ships to Western Australia. And they also went to Victoria as well. The girls did, not convicts. Not, very few convicts went to Victoria. And no convicts ever went to South Australia. But um, they brought over thousands from the orphanages of around Covent Garden in London, but also from Ireland. Because of the famine in Ireland, there were thousands and thousands of orphan girls. But I looked up uh, some of the names and found my own great-great-grandmother there. Uh, she was a 14-year-old Irish girl who came here who married my great-great-grandfather, who was a convict, Irish convict. And he'd been sent to Perth, to Fremantle, uh, as, as a 19-year-old for stealing turf, you know, turf bog that they used for fires yeah, and that sort of yeah. stuff. And, uh, but she was a 14-year-old Irish girl who couldn't speak English. She spoke Gaelic. And uh, she'd been on the bottom of a ship for three months coming here, but she'd been orphaned in Ireland. She had no one left in her family that all died. And she arrived here at, at Fremantle and married my, her husband, my great-great-grandfather, on the day she arrived. And because there was a Catholic priest there. And they got married and uh, that was it. And they stayed together a nine, nine children, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But earlier than that, it was my first ancestors were 1829 with Sterling. 
before the convicts. Yeah, and he was a, a soldier with the 63rd Regiment. He was a uh, he wasn't one of the ones who was here to make money. He was the protection force, and he'd fought at the Battle of Waterloo, and then uh, he was um, he came here, and then he married a woman who arrived on the Callista in 1829, and she was widowed very soon after she came here. So she, he married her, and they had lots of children, and down the track is me and all my brothers and sister and everyone. So thousands of cousins. Along that great line, are there any actors? Is, is theatre a family business? Uh, not really. Um, my mother ran a choir for many, many years, and she was, very, she was quite theatrical in some ways. My father was very quiet. Um, he, was a, uh, he and his brothers were all in the Second World War. They were um, uh, bomber pilots and all that. And um, Dad was a navigator on bombers, and his brothers were bomber pilots on... A, uh, one, one on uh, well, on the Catalina, the flying boats. Another one was on Lancasters, and they both died, but um, never found. But uh, uh, Mum was uh, uh, she was a great musician, um, uh, pianist, organist, um, singer, all that sort of thing. So I suppose it comes to that line. Yeah. But on Dad's side, there were a couple of actors um, uh, who ended up in London. And uh, but didn't give take up acting really. They went into psychology and uh, uh, but lived in London. And um, but they'd both been bomber pilots during the war as well. These are cousins of dad's. And um, uh, when I went to drama school in England in 1980, I stayed with this cousin in London and uh, used to hear his story. He was from Geraldton in Western Australia and he'd lived in London since 1950. And he had this fantastic flat. In, uh, in London, in Marlborough, in London, right near Bond Street um, uh, tube station. And it was the bottom floor of a Georgian house that was owned by the Duke of Devonshire. The whole street was owned by the Duke of Devonshire. But John, my cousin, he had this flat, fantastic flat, um, that he had at a capped rent of £205 a quarter. Wow. And in London, right in the centre of London. Right. And, uh, but he, he one night, uh, after a couple of gin and tonics, he told me that he'd taken part in the bombing of Dresden. And, it, and that triggered his love of the arts because he realised the significance of what he'd taken part in. And he then devoted himself to the arts, apart from working as a psychologist as well. Yeah. So, Had he retained his uh, Geraldine accent? or No. Manufactured it? No, he sounded absolutely, <laughs> perfectly English. And no one ever, he didn't tell anyone he was from Geraldton. Oh, no. In Australia. In North Australia. People would say, John, where are you from? Oxford? Cambridge? Where did you go? And he'd go, no, no, I'm from a long way away. <laughs> he never gave on that he was actually from Western Australia. He was a, a friend of Randolph Stowe's and things like that. Oh, right. From uh, Geraldton, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the access to the arts that you had as a child, largely through mum, was there any drama at school? Oh, well, I went to uh, a Christian Brothers School, Aquinas College. So that uh, Aquinas then was the top, certainly, sporting school in Western Australia and one of the top in Australia. And so sport, the Christian Brothers were famous for, for the sportsmen that they um, produced. Uh, uh, I was probably the worst sportsman Aquinas ever produced. Having said that, my three brothers were brilliant, very, very good sportsmen, but I was useless. Um, but uh, one of the brothers there, 
they always used to do uh, plays and musicals with uh, our sister school, Santa Maria. And one of the brothers there, um, he uh, singled me out. He said, listen, Lani, you, you can act. And I, I never, no one ever said that to me before. He said, you can act, come on, you're going to be in the play. And that uh, really was the beginning of it. When I was about 14, I was put into plays. And um, people Well, yeah, it became something that uh, I, was, um, I was told I was good at. What sort of repertoire were you doing at school? Oh, look, I think we did the Miracle Worker was the first thing we right. did. And uh, Chekhov's The Proposal uh, and a couple of other plays. And I can't remember now. It's a long time ago. But uh, that was, um, yeah, that was the beginning, I suppose. And then I went to Wait, which was, uh, it's now Curtin University. And this is before Whopper and uh, that sort of thing. So they had a drama course? Oh, or? yeah, very fine. Very good. And still do. But um, that was the whopper of its time. If you wanted to be an actor or you had um, wanted to be involved in the theatre, you went to Wait, to the English course at Wait. Who were uh, the teachers there? And Wait standing for Western Australian Institute of Technology. Um, a few of them, uh, well, there was David Addenbrook who set it up. There was Patricia Skevington who was voice. There was Tony Nichols later. Um, Evan Taplin. Um, oh golly, lots lots of people involved there, but um, a, a lot of people came through there. Judy Davis, yeah, that's where she started. Right, great. Yeah, yeah, she great. started there, and then she went off to NIDA, and she's probably there most. Famous. Oh, Kate Kate Mulvaney, who's now a very uh, well, wonderful actor, yeah, and she's a fantastic Writer. person. Yeah, and uh, she's a, a Curtin graduate right. now, now called Curtin, of course. Yeah. But she's probably Judy Davis and Kate Mulvaney and various other people would be um, their top people. Julia Moody, Ingle Knight, all those sort of people came through there as well. So you graduate from there, I think? Yeah, with an English degree in 1977, I think it was. And then I worked as an actor for a few years at the Playhouse and the Hole in the Wall and bits and pieces of TV that came along in those days. And then in 1980, I got a scholarship, a rotary scholarship, to go to Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in England and to do their two-year course there. You'd obviously applied to do it, though. I'd applied yeah, and yeah. then won the scholarship to pay for it all, right. which was fantastic. So you felt that you needed further training as oh, an actor? Oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Also, I'd never been out of WA. Okay, so it was <laughs> a nice opportunity for an adventure. Well, growing up in WA in those days, coming from such a... Um, old Irish Australian Catholic family I was related to everyone I knew everyone and if I didn't know them then my mother or father went to school with them yeah. and then literally that's the case and so it, you, you feel like you wanted to get out not that it was oppressive in any way but you just wanted to go somewhere else find your own identity exactly yeah. Yeah. go somewhere when you weren't related to everywhere everyone and that was the case in England, of course. And uh, so I was very lucky to be at the Bristol Old Vic and uh, loved it. Had a great time there. So what did that training consist of? Well, it's a classical of? school. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a classical school. So it was based on things that, well, I suppose 40 years later is not really much point. in. It's all about Shakespeare and restoration and that sort of thing. But uh, So movement classes? Oh, movement and, and dance. Speech. And, Speech and drama, and they knocked the Australian accent out of me pretty quickly. 
But uh, certainly an, an appreciation of style, I guess, which I oh, think is yes. lacking in a lot of actors today, I must oh, admit. I, yeah, I, I have yeah. gone to see productions of, say, Cyrano de Bergerac, mm-hmm. and there's a cast of 17, mm-hmm. and they're doing five different plays, or no understanding oh, exactly. of style. Oh, exactly, no understanding of style, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of gems I remember from the time at Bristol Old Vic, and there was uh, Rudy Shelley was the most influential teacher there, along with Nat Brenner, and Rudy had started the school in 1946, it was opened by Laurence Olivier in 1946, but uh, uh, Rudy Shelley was there from 1946, and this is 1980 to 82 when I was there. And he used to tell the most fantastic stories that really encaptured the simplicity of the craft of acting. And he told one story that he was, and he was a terrible name dropper, shocking. <laughs> and he'd say, and he was a, a, a Jewish man from uh, Austria, and he uh, he would say, "Oh, my friend Pete." Postlethwaite, he's a former student of mine, wonderful actor because of me, of course. And he'd say, Pete, what? And Peter Postlethwaite was doing this um, scene in this at the school because he was a former student in the school, and he, I think they were doing a fellow, and uh, he was playing Iago, and Rudy went up to him and said, um, Pete, you are struggling. What's the matter? And he said, oh, Rudy, I just don't know what's going on. I cannot do this. I cannot do this. I, I'm hopeless. I can't do this. And he said, Pete, what are you in? He said, I'm in Othello. No, no, Pete, what are you in? He said, I'm in Othello. He said, no, what are you in? He went, a play? Yes, Pete, it's a play. Just play. It's all pretend. That's all it is. Just go and play, like a child. Go and play. And Pete Possethwaite said the scales fell. He thought, of course, that's all it is. Yeah. It's pretend. He said, he said, go and pretend to be Iago. You are not Iago. If you are Iago, God help your Desdemona, because you're going to kill her. <laughs> but, uh, you know, or you're not a fellow, rather. Uh, Iago, of course, doesn't kill Desdemona, but... Um, you know, if you were Othello, you know, you, you, you don't become Othello. You pretend. He said, that's all it is. It's a play. You pretend. And that was his approach. And he always, one of the things he always said to me, or to, to anyone, he said, you must maintain a child's ability to play. If you can no longer play like a child, you cannot be an actor. Because so many adults do lose that ability, don't oh, yeah, they? We, yeah. we, we, we're embarrassed about sort of that's playing, right. etc. But as actors, it's essential mm-hmm. to the craft. But he always said, acting is make-believe. Yeah. But the hard part, Michael, the hard part is for getting other people to believe. That's the craft. The skill is getting other people to believe. But it's all make-believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So upon graduation, you worked for a bit in London? Uh, in England, throughout England, I yeah. did a bit of theatre. Um, went up to Scotland to the Pitlochry Festival, I was up there for most of 1983, um, doing all sorts of things. We did a season of repertoire there where we did Admirable Crichton, Night Must Fall, Rookery Nook, Twelfth Night, and the Brian Friel play, Translations. We did it in repertoire. We do on a Monday. So you had five plays five, in your head. Five plays in your head. Wow. And on a Monday, you do, say, Twelfth Night. On a Tuesday, you do Translations. And on a Wednesday matinee, you do Rookery Nook. On a Wednesday night, you, you do um, Night Must Fall. And, and on a Thursday, you might do Twelfth Night again. And on a Friday, you do a different one. And on a Saturday matinee, you do a different one Saturday night. So every night, every performance was different. 
And it was a, that was fantastic training, that was. Because you're doing thrillers, you're doing Shakespeare, you're doing a modern Irish play. And it, that was fantastic, I must admit. So you go to the dressing room, you undress from the farce, and then you yeah. are in thriller mode. Well, I remember one performance. Uh, the guy playing Malvolio was dressed as Malvolio. And we were doing twelfth, and we were doing uh, Admirable Crichton, and he was playing Crichton in Admirable Crichton, and we were, and the the rug was about to go up, and I said, Alec, what are you dressed as? He said, we're doing, are we doing twelfth night? And I said, no, no, we're doing Crichton. <laughs> he dashed. They had to hold the curtain while he dashed and put on white tie and tails to do Crichton. Well, it's like that wonderful scene in the dresser when he's he's making up for Othello and he's supposed to be in King Lear. That's right. That's right. It was, it was a bit like that. It was very much like that. Yeah. <laughs> but you're playing, uh, I hope, a, a variety of roles, smaller roles and big roles in the various plays. Yeah. Or? Well, I was Feste in Twelfth Night. I was Owen, who was the translator in Translations, the Brian Friel play. I was. Hubert, in who was the daggy uh, husband in Night Must Fall. He's only got a few scenes. Who was I in Rookery Nook? I can't even remember. And um, who else was there? Then there was an Admirable Crichton. I was some foppish lord, lord someone or other, who was you know very there, sort of chinless, chinless wonder. <laughs> So that would require five different sets too, I guess. Oh, yes. And the, the hardest working uh, crew you'll ever come across because th- those sets had to be designed to be able to be got out in half an hour and another one put in within half an hour. So what was the reasoning behind that model? You just wanted to give that audience, that community, a taste of it? Well, what it was, it was a tourist. Right. So it was a tourist town. Pitlochry was a beautiful town, one of the most beautiful towns you'll ever see in Scotland. And right in the middle of Scotland, about 13... 27 miles, I think it was, north of Perth in Scotland. And in the summer, the theatre there, Pitlockery Festival, was a big tourist drawcard. So people would come and stay there and go and see two, or three or four plays. Uh, upon graduation, what was your graduation play? Um, oh, what was it? Uh, Julian's... Was it was a, a period piece? Yes, that's right. And your folks went to see it? Oh, yeah. Well, my parents hadn't... Uh, they'd came over from Perth to see me at Bristol, and I hadn't seen them for two years. And we did a show called um, 60,000 Nights, which was a celebration of the Theatre Royal in Bristol, uh, which it was the oldest and still is the oldest working uh, theatre in England, 1766 it opened. And it was a show set in 1766 when the theatre was um, opening, and David Garrick was one of the characters, and I was William Powell who was the first general manager of the of the Theatre Royal in Bristol. And so we're all in, in frock coats and high heels and stockings and wigs and all that sort of thing. And uh, so <laughs> written by Julian Slade, who wrote... Uh, um, uh, Saladay. Saladay, thank you, which was a Bristol Old Vic production yeah. by two students, Dorothy Reynolds and... Uh, and Julian Slade, who wrote as an end-of-year show, which went on to become a huge hit. Yeah. Huge. And he, anyway, he did 60,000 Nights. But anyway, I did uh, this show, and I was the manager in this wig and all that sort of thing. And uh, so I met up with my parents after the performance. I hadn't seen them. They'd flown in from Perth, and I hadn't seen them. And I caught up with them in the bar, uh, Renato's, which was the bar next door that all the actors went to. And I said to them, well, and I've got to must, must say, my parents were of that era where they don't give compliments. Yep. They were that, you know, you were quite good. Don't get a big head. That's, that's, that'll do you, right? 
particularly my father. He never <laughs> hardly complimented anyone, but mum didn't either. And I said to them, well, have I improved? Have I, you know, was it worth it, this training and all that? And, and dad said, yeah, you're quite good. And I thought, oh, that's all right. And then mum said, I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over it. And I thought, oh, well, what's coming now? And she said, I couldn't get over how much you look like Auntie Noreen. <laughs> and that was that was the the end of it. And of course I did. In the week, I looked like Auntie Noreen. But... Um, that's as much as I got out of them, yeah. Great reviews. You did Coronation Street. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, 1986 and 1987. I played an Australian character named oh, Ian, is I his name. And uh, he was a cousin of one of the main characters at the time, Brian, Brian Tilsley. And uh, then my character, Ian, ended up having an affair with his wife, Gail. And which was caused a big stink on the show at the time. This is 30-odd years ago. And this is the days when Coronation Street got 17 million viewers every episode. That's extraordinary. It was, a bit, it was huge. Yeah. Coronation Street was massive. And I was in it for on and off over months at a time, 1986 and 87. Yeah, it was great fun. Did you start to get recognised in the street because oh, of that? God, did you ever? Yeah. You couldn't help it. I mean... Um, uh, yeah, I remember the first, one of the first episodes I was in, some of my mates came and we watched it together. Then we decided to go down the pub. This is about 8.30 because it was on about 7.30 and by 8.30 went down the pub and I walked in because everyone had been, had seen it and then come to the pub as well. Right. And the pub went silent and I couldn't understand it. And they all went, we just, we all just saw you in, you were, I thought, oh, that really, it is a massive thing. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but funnily enough, at the time, the biggest hit in Britain was Neighbours. That was the biggest thing. And everyone would say to me, do you know so-and-so from Neighbours? Do you know? You do? You know? I said, well, I've worked with them. What? And that I couldn't get over how big Neighbours was. In fact, I remember going to a casting session, and there were some pretty big names at the casting session, and uh, it was a 10 o'clock thing. And in those days, Neighbours was on at 10 o'clock in the morning and 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So the, the 1 o'clock performance uh, um, episode was shown at 10 o'clock the next day for anyone to catch up. And it was massive. And, but it, it was about 10 o'clock this day, um, or this casting session. And the casting director, who was a pretty big casting director, came out and said, we're just going to stop uh, for about 20 minutes, stop the casting session. And we all went, oh, really? They said, well, we want to watch Neighbours. They stopped the casting session so that everyone there could watch Neighbours. And all the actors there, I remember Tim Piggott-Smith was in there. It was one of the people there. And uh, he said, "Uh, can we all watch it? Can you bring the TV in? They brought it into the room where all the actors were waiting. And everyone stopped and just watched Neighbours. There was this fascination with Neighbours. It was a... It's quite. It's hard to explain how big Neighbours was in England, in the, in, certainly when it began in the 80s. Yeah. And it's bizarre that some punters have trouble separating the actor from the character. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yes, exactly. One of the reasons, apparently, why it was such a hit is because of the breakdown in classes. Oh, right, yeah. Everyone was equal. Everyone was equal. They all lived in this cul-de-sac, and the plumber lived next door to the, the lawyer or yeah. the doctor. Yeah. 
And they all and one of the things that t- people there told me they loved the fact that people just walked into each other's houses. And another one told a sister-in-law of mine who was working in London at the time that what what they loved is when they opened the fridge door it was full of food. <laughs> yeah, and you can see all the food. And the the the, the plumber's kids mixed with the kids of the the, of the doctor. And they just loved that. Yeah. I believe a lot of families migrated to Australia also because because of that. Yeah, moving to Melbourne, wanting to be in um, Ramsey Street. Ramsey Street. Mm. Yeah. Being a, a prominent actor in Perth, do you get recognised in the street no, also? No, no, not at all. No? No. No. I suppose you know everyone too, anyone. Just I, I, I'm related to them all anyway. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, no, um, people don't tend to, and Australians really are. Of the style of oh there he is or there's so and so yeah who's he don't give him a big head but uh, no um, I suppose years ago um, when I was working more people might recognise you but uh, generally if you've been on stage they don't tend to remember you very much yeah. they remember you from TV yeah. and I've been more uh, recognised from TV commercials than I ever have from stage work yeah. Mm. You've chalked up quite a repertoire of uh, performances, over 150 productions. Something like that, yeah. Mm. yeah. Do you have any favourites? I love doing The Goat or Who is Sylvia. Oh, great play. And great uh, play. played Martin in that yeah. uh, for Perth Theatre Company in 2006, I think it was. Um, that was a fantastic production, and what a play. What a play. Uh, yeah, liked it because it tested you as an actor or oh, you had to go t- places that you well, never... Well, yes, but also uh, Edward Albee, and apparently it's Albee, not Albee. Right. I saw him on uh, being interviewed once and, and the interviewer said to him, Mr Albee, and he said, excuse me, I'm from New England. It's Albee. It's like Albany, not Albany. Exactly. So I've, ever since then, I've um, uh, called him Mr Albee. And by the way, we had to send our photographs to him to monitor uh, to the casting, to okay it. And we all had to be, look like white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant Americans. He said, because if you're black, you're not doing the play I wrote. Right. So he wouldn't allow people who were not looking like a wasp. Right. Because he said his plays are about what WASP Americans, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, have done to America. Yeah. And he said if you cast a, a black person, a black you know, African, um, uh, African-American, that is not the story I'm writing. Right. And he said, while I'm alive, I'll control it. He is now dead, of course, and they can do whatever they like, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. But uh, very controlling and pretty controversial, to say the least. But uh, we had to send our photographs to him. But it is a great play, and that's one of the things that is so beautifully written. Well, themes of bestiality too, isn't it? The man's cheating on his wife with a, a goat. Well, yeah, but then again, if it was another woman or even another man, we've seen that story before. Yeah, exactly. So but I've never been in a, it. I've never been in a production where more people, uh, so many people walked out of it. People walked out screaming. Right. I remember one woman one night uh, screaming, "I can't stand any more of this." And another time, we had a group uh, of. Um, about 20 uh, Muslim tourists came in with the women all in the full outfit. And um, we thought, wow, how are they going to take this? Anyway, they stood up and cheered at the end. They loved it. Thought it was fantastic. 
we weren't too sure how they were going to take it. But um, no, it was a superb production, and uh, th- that I loved. Stylistically, um, too, it sort of fuses ancient Greek drama, oh, comedy of manners, yeah. and black comedy. Yeah, That's and of course, the whole set is destroyed yeah. by the wife when she finds out. And then when the, the goat is brought on with its throat slit, and we had a, such a brilliant lookalike goat, that I remember one woman in the audience said, uh, and I overheard her say, if that thing's real, I'm out of here. <laughs> and someone said, no, I think it's a it's make-believe goat. It's it an illusion. It's an yes. illusion. But uh, it did look like a real goat. But it was a brilliant production. Mm. So that I loved. I also played Sweeney Todd in the, dra- in the melodrama. Uh, I played it twice, once when I was 18 and once when I was about 35, um, for Arnie Nimi directing the melodrama, which then, of course, Sondheim adapted into into the musical. Uh, Did that twice. That was great fun. Um, Oh, God, there's so many plays. I know so many Shakespeare's, about 20 different Shakespeare's, Um, lots of musicals. One of the most fun ones I've done in recent years was uh, The Merry Widow for WA Opera, for for Opera Australia, with Graham Murphy directing. And that was great fun, The Merry Widow. I loved that. Yeah, so all sorts of things over the years. Hmm. You're still acting? Not as much as I used to. So no stage work anymore and no um, film or TV, but voiceovers on radio TV. Yeah. Why is that? Is it there's a lack of theatre opportunities in Perth? Or? Yeah, there's a la- there's certainly um, a lack of theatre opportunities, and also with companies like Black Swan and that doing co-pros, where half the cast is say from Melbourne Theatre Company or Sydney Theatre Company the opportunities are halved immediately in the cast. So, um, yeah, and fewer, fewer productions, fewer and fewer companies. I always um, equate what happens in theatre is mirrored in the, in the general economy where the manufacturing industry has either died in some places or has been centralised and there are fewer and fewer people doing the same amount of work or maybe even less work. And that's what's happened in the theatre. So few people are, are involved in the paid part. There are a lot of people who love the arts and are involved in the arts, but they're not being paid. And that's the big difference. Yeah. Whereas, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people were paid. And that's a big difference. Yeah. I think that, you know, quote, which is often bandied about, that actors don't stop acting, the profession retires you. Yes, you're made redundant. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's happened to a lot of actors. They're made redundant. Also, the fashion today is not your um, classical British trained or British style or whatever actor. It is more, well, it's now uh, indigenous actors, which is fantastic. Um, And the whole um, array of uh, different styles. It's a new world, basically. Were you superstitious? Did you have an opening night ritual that you went through? (laughs) No, but my mother-in-law was. Um, uh, We're talking about the great Faith Clayton. Faith Clayton, uh, who's still with us, but not too well. Uh, She was the most superstitious actress I've ever come across. And if I said the name of the Scottish play, I was literally ordered outside the house. I had to walk around three times, knock on the door and spit and to be allowed back in. She would literally do that. And uh, I remember once... um, when I was a student at Bristol Old Vic, I was doing a play, Arturo Ui, at um, the Bristol Old Vic Theatre Company. While I was still a student, there was this older actor, and uh, he, um, 
uh, named James Cancross. He was actually in the first, the original cast of Salad Days in 1954. But he said to me, and he was an old actor laddie, one of those old actor laddies, and he said to me, dear boy, what are you giving next? And I said the name of the play that we were rehearsing at um, the drama school at Bristol Old Vic, and it, and it was, of course, the Scottish play, the Shakespearean Scottish play. And uh, he said, and we were standing in the wings of the Theatre Royal in Bristol, and he said, oh, dear boy, don't mention that play, not in the wings of the theatre. He said, if you're going to call that play anything, call it The Murders in Glam's Crescent. <laughs> and and uh, I've always called it that since then. Great. Mm. Did you read your reviews? Not for years and years and years. Really? In fact, Edgar Metcalf stopped me reading reviews. Um, he said, they're just one person's opinion. That's all they are. And you, generally, that person's got no idea what they're talking about. So don't read reviews. And I haven't read them. And I was, when I first started in the 70s, I couldn't understand why the old actors wouldn't read the reviews. It was only us young actors who would race to the West Australian to get the hot off the press, literally, and get them out on the... Because it used to come out the morning after the opening night. And um, we'd read these reviews and uh, and the, I'd say to the older actors, you know, here, look at this, read this, Ros Barr or Edgar Metcalf or whatever, Jeff Gibbs or whoever we happen to be with. And uh, they'd go, oh, don't, I don't want to see that. No, take it away from me. Don't want to read that. And only later did I really understand that a bad review upsets you. Yeah, plays with your head. And a good review, well, generally, the ego. well, not only that, if you... If you don't trust that reviewer, if you don't have, uh, don't respect that reviewer, you can't take what they say. Yeah. And so they said, no, don't read them. Just don't read them. So I stopped years ago, long time ago. What was your method of uh, learning lines, learning scripts? Walking around at the same time. Right. Yeah. I was good at learning lines years ago. Not so good now. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I used to... My wife, Cathy, uh, she... Faith Clayton's daughter, of course, who'd gone, helped Faith learn her lines for years and years since she was a child. And she would be very good. She was always on the book and we'd do the lines when the children had gone to sleep. Right. Basically, learning all the lines. There's a, a lot of rejection in the actor's occupation, career. Mm. How does an actor equip themselves effectively to, to handle all of that rejection? Good question, and I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of very good actors drop out early uh, because they can't handle it. And a lot of very maybe actors who weren't generally the best survive and get become better and better actors because they've learnt how to get a thick skin, basically. Um, but I've seen a lot of very fine actors just give up yeah. because they cannot handle that. They cannot handle the continual rejection and the continual unemployment, the, the financial stress that that brings. And also, if they uh, have children and that, that's another stress. They can't handle that. But it is, uh, you, you use the word, the phrase, playing with your head, and it does do that. Yeah. Um, so rejection does, because you take it personally, and you shouldn't. And it's not, often not a reflection on your ability. It's just you're too tall, you're too short. Yeah, exactly. Your name's not big enough. Well, I... Uh, only this last week or so, I read the uh, phrase, I can't remember who it was, some actor mentioned it. They said, if you're an apple and you're going to audition and they actually want an orange, 
it doesn't mean that you're wrong because you're an apple. It's because they wanted an orange. Yeah. And you can't be an orange because you're an apple. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. It is not because of you. It's because they weren't looking for you. You remain a good fruit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is there a role that you'd like to have played in your career that you didn't get to do? Oh, well, King Lear, I suppose. Oh, there's uh, still time for that. Well, yes. I'm the right age, I suppose. Uh, I would have loved to have played um, The Salesman, The Death of a Salesman. That's a great role. I would have loved to have played James Tyrone in Long Day's Journey Into Night. All those sort of plays that uh, Raymond Omaday loved. Yeah. Um, yeah. There they were a few that I would have liked. Well, all of those roles still fit in your age, age group. I suppose You've James, still got a few years. James Tyrone does. So, yeah. so let's hope that you, you never know. can achieve But more. I wonder how much the... Perth, well, certainly in Perth and around Australia, that the 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 canon of theatre of your great plays, your, what are classics like Long Day's Journey and all that, how much they're going to be done in the future? Because is there an audience for them now? Yeah. Do people want to see uh, classical shows? Do they want to see? Them? Do they have the concentration span to actually sit down and invest four hours mm. into Long Day's Journey? Well, that's tonight? right. It's a long, long show. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting, a friend of mine did um, a fellow at the Donmar Warehouse in London only a, or a few years ago, and uh, the director uh, was trying to work out where to set a fellow. And after months and months and months of working it out, they did it in Elizabethan with rough, the, the collar rough, the, yeah. and they did it absolutely in Shakespeare's time. They said it worked beautifully. So I wonder if we might start going back to some of those basics of setting a play in its period, in its time, and allow it just to speak for itself rather than, you know, telegraphing to an audience what um, we want them to think now in today's world of what we hope, what they should be thinking. Just let the play stand for itself. I've had the privilege to see Michael on stage many times and he is a consummate actor and terrifically supportive of his peers in the industry. It was great to catch up with an old friend. I hope you're enjoying the Perth Conversations. Our peers in the West are certainly serving up great experiences of the arts. There is always something new for us to learn, so if you've enjoyed this conversation, you're bound to enjoy many more from the Stages Archive. You'll find conversations with Reg Livermore and Chloe Dallimore, just to name a few. See what I did there? And all with fascinating tales across all stages. Find the podcast on Spotify, Wooshka or in iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe so that you may receive each new episode as it drops. Take the time to rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages. Catch you next time.